Welcome back to Who's Talking. His life is a true rags to riches story, starting from a poor and often violent childhood to become one of the most successful and entertaining storytellers around, all while pushing back on barriers of class and race. And while his primary vehicle has been a church-going, Bible-quoting, gun-toting grandmother, his latest project is a full 180, a period piece rich with drama and romance. I worked a lot on this question, Alex. Hey, so, Janaya, don't do that. We, <laughs> are you always like this? Are you saying parents are wrong? Yes. Will you come back? Yes, okay. of course I will. Tyler Perry, welcome. I am delighted and excited to get to sit and talk with you for a bit. Thank you, as am I. Thanks for having me, Chris. Well, thank you. Thank you. So, I have a confession to make right at the start. Okay. And that is that before I started preparing for this interview, I certainly knew about you. I knew about your standing in the industry. I knew about your huge studio in Atlanta, but I had never seen a Tyler Perry film. (laughs) So what are you apologizing for? You weren't the target. You weren't the target. <laughs> well, I mean, okay. that's the question yeah, I'm going to yeah, ask you. The first yeah. question, does it bother you at all that the movie audience is still so, I, I mean, I've thought about whether I was going to use this word or not. I'm going to self-segregated. Mm. I, I don't know if it's self-segregated as much as it is people like what they like. They want to see what they want to see and they want to see what's familiar and what's comfortable or what's, what's intriguing to them. And if, if, the movies that I've made and and the audiences that I've catered to for all these years, you know, I was very specific in my targeting, so I'm not offended by that at all. Well, well, good. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious. I mean, I'm sure you've done studies. Yeah. What percentage of your audience is African American? I haven't done uh, studies that are official, but from the beginning of my career, going when I started doing these live stage shows, it was 99% African American, just all over the country from end to end. So where I am now, I'm seeing I'm seeing that change quite a bit, but I couldn't tell you exactly specifics. Since 2020, you've made three films for Netflix. Right. And yeah. I wonder, was part of, of that trying to get a broader reach, both racially and geographically? I, I think it most of it was just where the industry is going. I, I've had an incredible run with Lionsgate, but also for many years I've been told that people Movies with black people in them are black leads or black stars or black writers. There's no international audience for that, those films. So I've never had an opportunity to have a film that open theatrically be released around the world. Um, but having these movies open on Netflix and having them be number one in several countries dispel that myth completely. So, so that's one of the reasons uh, to be there. And the other side of it, they're just a great company to work with. Your latest movie, which has just been released, is called A Jazz Man's Blues. And I read a very surprising quote. You said it was the first movie that you've enjoyed directing. Yeah, yeah. Why? Everything else has always felt like work. I've been very intentional in my my positioning of myself as far as in the industry. I knew my audience would be there. I knew my audience would support me and the Medeas and the Why Did I Get Married and all of the big, broader comedies. But this I held on so long because I was waiting for the right time. But what was most important to me is that um, that was always intentional, strategic. This was just love. 
I showed up on set every day. I wanted every shot to be uh, as if you could frame it. You know, I had a great DP, Brett Pollock, and Debbie Allen doing the choreography, and Terrence Blanchard doing the music. So every element, everything you had touched, from the sets to the trees to the location, it all spoke to me. And it was more than what I ever imagined when I wrote it 27 years ago. Is it true that Oprah read one of the good reviews that you've gotten for Jazz Man to you over the phone recently? She, yeah, she did. I, I don't read reviews just for the fact of just being in this business for a long time and um, doing things that, again, were intentional and specific for my audience and having uh, someone review it who didn't quite understand that or may not really realize what it was. Um, good or bad, I just didn't read them. So she called me up on the phone. She said, have you read the Variety Review? I was like, no, I'm not going to read. She said, no, no, you have to read it. I was like, nope, not going to break any rules here. She said, no, no. She, and she starts to read it on the phone. So, And she got emotional halfway through reading it because she's just so proud of, of the journey. So and, and, as am I. I'm just very grateful. Yeah, tell me about that before we get. I promise yeah. we're going to get to Jasmine. Yeah, good. But tell me about your relationship with Oprah, both personally and professionally. Rushing home uh, from school to watch her on television was a big deal for me because there was this woman who looked familiar, like she was a cousin, friend, sister of mine, that uh, an aunt who was so inspiring and so smart. And it was very rare to see black people on television. And she was one of the first uh, black people on television where you actually got to hear her have an opinion every day. And for me, that was so inspiring. And to get a call from her. I, re I remember when Diary of a Mad Black Woman came out, I was walking down the street in Las Vegas. I get the, my phone rings. I'm like, hello, as I'm in the middle of a million things. And she says, hi, this is Oprah. And I almost walked into traffic, right? <laughs> so that's where it all started. And here, 18 years I mean, later. I mean, just a cold call. No, cold up nope, nope, we'll call nope. you at X and time. I, I, and I found she loves to do that to people. They're just called, this is Oprah. So everybody goes, wait, what? No. Yeah, good thing I didn't hang up on her. But 18 years later, we're still great friends. So let's talk about Jazz Man, uh, which I loved. Thank you. And I just think it's, I enjoyed so much, and I particularly enjoyed the big production numbers. And let's take a look at one. Oh, wow. Thank you. It don't mean a thing, everybody got to sing. Yeah. <laughs> are you, are you enjoying Allen. him or are you enjoying what you did as the director? I, I'm enjoying, first of all, I'm super proud of him because this is his first big role. Right. And Debbie Allen's choreography and, and also realizing that that is a gym. Uh, an old gym at the studio that we converted into really? a jazz club. Yeah, yeah. So it was a lot going on in it, but it was amazing. No, no, yeah. that's a that's a theater in downtown Chicago. Yes, absolutely right. Absolutely <laughs> don't, right. Please don't wreck yeah, it for yeah. me. Okay, we sold it to you. Yeah, yeah. No, you did. Yeah. Now, that's Joshua Boone, yeah. who is the star of the movie and is just great in it. But I read a quote where he said he wasn't sure at first whether he was going to sign on for this because while your movies made a lot of money, yeah. they didn't often get or ever get good reviews. Do you think that's true? And if so, why? Why don't you get good, or why hadn't you prior to this gotten good reviews? Uh, you know, I, I, yes, that is true and that is fair. Uh, but I, what, I, what I know about it, again, it goes back to the intentionality of it all. I was 
speaking directly to my audience in a way that we speak, a language that we speak, that we get. And if you are a, a trained eye, you may not understand that or get it. So, I, you know, the, the criticism is what it has been and what it, what it was, what it is. And that's all fine, because what I know inside of the criticism for every bad review, there were at least 20, 30,000 positive comments on my pages of telling me how this spoke to them. Or, listen, Chris, you have to understand, to have people who have followed me who cannot afford therapy, could not go and get into the Range Rover and go in on vacation, but was they were going through some difficult things and could watch Diary of a Mad Black Woman and see themselves. I'll never forget getting an email from a woman saying, you did in an hour and a half what my family and I have been trying to do for 12 years. My sister's leaving a bad relationship. It gave her hope. So it's kind of hard to focus on a bad review when you have people's real lives changing from some of these things. So that was my purpose and my focus. One of the themes, because there's wildly entertaining scenes like that, yeah. but, but there's also some serious stuff in yeah. it. And one of the themes in the movie, uh, and you do have themes in the movies in addition to great comedy or now production numbers, is colorism. Yeah. And the idea that people are judged by, even in their own group, yeah. by how light or dark their skin is. Why was that? And you say you had written the movie, what, 17 years? 27 years ago. 27 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Why did you want to address that? I, you know, what I, the way I write is I, I'll start sit down at the computer and I'll, characters will start to show up. Sometimes I'll get scenes I don't even know what, they for, what they're for and I'll just put them aside and then all of a sudden they'll come together. Um, when I started writing Bayou's character played by Joshua Boone, his father despised him. It kind of took me to my own father. And, and some of the problems that my father had with me is because I was a brown child. His favorite child was the very fair child. And there, we, they, my father grew up in the Jim Crow South and endured a whole lot of things. So there was this mentality of the lighter your skin, the better you were. And that lived on and still is on today, which is really shocking to me. So I think that may be why subconsciously it showed up. One of the characters, I hope I'm not giving too much away, mm -hmm. in Jazz Man is a young woman, yeah. and this is in the 30s and 40s, who passes as white. And you make it really clear, this is a capital offense that people find out she's a dead woman. Yeah, which is, which is as it was. And that's part of the reason I wanted to do this movie now. There's this, uh, this attempt to water, water down the history of black people in the country, the atrocities of slavery and Jim Crow, the banning of books and all those things. So I thought this is the time to do this movie, even though it's fictional. But if you look at the character Leanne being passing for white, that was a choice that was made that was very difficult. You had to walk away from everything you knew and everybody you knew to have, uh, even have a chance at having a better life. I mean, look at some famous people who did it that, that we know of that went on to have a better life. Had they not done that, they wouldn't have been who they are. Like Carol Channing being one of them. Carol Channing? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So she was part African-American? Yes, from what I understand in my research, yeah. She was passing for white. Wow. Yeah. Hello, pretty, Dolly. Pretty shocking, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, hello, Dolly. Well, it yeah. is, but you also think what a weight that must have been throughout her whole life particularly in a less enlightened period when... Yeah. Uh, to hold that secret. Yes. Yeah. Or, or, or be... And even, the, even the, the weight of someone having that over your head. Can you imagine? At the higher she rose, can you imagine? Yeah. Before 
you did movies, yeah. you st started writing, directing, and starring in plays, and that's where you created your signature character, Medea. Yeah. And uh, let's take a look at No. Nope. <laughs> you want to show it, Chris? Go ahead. Go well, ahead. Why? Is this? Is this? Okay, why? Fine. What's the matter? Well, that's fine. We'll watch it. Let's see. I don't know what you're going to play. We'll see it. Well, I think I'm going to look this way. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right, folks, please bear with me. You, you, he's not looking. Please look yeah. at, yeah. I don't know why you'd have Let's a problem see. with it. Here is the Medea in a play. Did you have to tear up her flowers? Y'all act like she didn't owe me $20. What is $20? I was checking her bra and them flowers just started falling over. What the hell they put a bra on a dead woman for anyway? When I die, don't y'all put no, if I got, if you put a bra on me, I'm gonna come back and kill you. I ain't lying, I ain't lying. I'd be the first ghost in history to bust a cap in somebody, I ain't lying. I'm so curious at your reaction. You, he, he didn't look at it, folks. Why? why? It's, 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 First of all, I'm, I'm, I've always been extremely uncomfortable in that suit and playing the character, but the audience loves it so much. I, I, I was going to do it for one little scene on stage, and the lead character didn't show up, so the character got bigger and bigger every night, and that's where it all started. So I love what it does for people, but the process to get it there and, and do it and all of that is, is a lot, so yeah. Do you feel that way about movies as well as plays? Medea, about Medea? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, so sure. we're going to have a bad time here because I'm going to show a, a couple lot of Medea. Uh, well, well, wait, wait, explain, though. Who is Medea? Medea is uh, it's, a, it's a southern term cross for it's in cross words mother dear. But she is based on which I love about my mother and my aunts. But my, my mother and aunt are the PG version. They're, she's the PG version of them. Right? Really? Oh, yeah. Because she's oh, not yeah. so PG. Oh, no, no. They're NC 17. But she. <laughs> but, um, but she is a, a, a definitely pay homage to all of the black women in my life who helped form me to help me become the man I am to just really inform everything about my life. So she is somebody who would love you and take care of you, but punch you in the face if you said the wrong thing. Well, yeah. that's, that's Medea. And, yeah. and what is the Chitlin circuit? And mm -hmm. is it true that at one point, this is before movies, yeah. that you had 35,000 people a week going yeah. to see your plays on the Chitlin circuit yeah. and got a hundred, sold a hundred million dollars in tickets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the Chitlin circuit is, and it's still around today, but it's not called that anymore, but it was very much a circuit where black performers could go and perform when they weren't allowed in white establishments doing Jim Crow. And what happens is, Black people would support their own and make them huge stars. I mean, you could look at Billie Holiday, and I, I can go down the list, Ray Charles, and all these people who, who, who toured became super famous among their own people and then eventually crossed over. So when I started doing plays, I was, there, was, there was no segregation then, so I was playing in a lot of the same establishments that were once segregated. But it was to that predominantly black audience all through the South, packing these houses to the rafters from, from week to week, and that's where it all started for me. So when I got to Hollywood, I had tremendous success uh, with all of this reinforcement from my audience. So I went in with a different sense of sensibility. I, I'm a little bit hesitant because I'm about to show another no, no, clip. Yeah, okay, I'm with you. All right. Okay, okay, all right. I mean, yeah. this kind of yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, in 2006, yeah. you turned that play into a film, a Medea's Family Reunion, in which you played not only Medea, yeah. but also her brother, Joe. Yeah. yeah. Let's yeah. take a look. Okay. Now move, old man. Step aside. Did that thing just push you, Joe? Yeah, she did. She don't know us. We Baptists. We'll tear this church up. 
Oh, you don't know me. I will set it off up in here. I'm telling you, I will do a drive-by in this church. You better be glad you're at church. Jesus just saved your life. Hallelujah. She don't know me at all. She, I'm a thug. I'm a real thug. I shot Tupac. I did the first time we was arguing over a parking spot. I ain't kill him, though. That wasn't me. Well, I, you, you shake your head. I've watched this for the first time three weeks ago. I think it's brilliant. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I'm not denying that it's great and funny. I enjoy it. But again, that's, I have to disassociate. That's actually me in that, in that. Now, old man Joe, I'm fine with for some reason. But her is just, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a little sexist, isn't yeah. it? Well, listen. Well, I got to say, for somebody who's a little embarrassed or uncomfortable with Medea, you've been playing her for 15, how many years? Yeah, but, uh, yeah, 2009, I think. Okay. But here's the thing. The, the audience won't let her go. Like, even the last time I did it, I said, I'm out. I'm not doing it anymore. And then the world goes upside down. We have a, a president and a new president. Just, so I wanted to make people laugh. So I said, what do I have? Pull her out. Put the movie on Netflix. It's number one everywhere. Yes. I'm like, it's great. okay, yeah, yeah. But the minute people stop coming to see her, that old broad is dead. <laughs> She's dead, man. She's wow. dead, for sure. Oh, for my sure. Lord. That old broad? I, I feel, I mean, you're, you're going to get slapped upside the head. I mean, yeah. you, you don't if mess with real. Medea. If she were real, yeah. But, but, you know, people love it, and I understand that because I had, uh, it was actually some of the girls at Oprah's school were talking about the character in a way that I, I recognized what I didn't fully get. It's like how informative it has been for them in their in their years of, of growing up without parents without you know a, a social construct where they could get this kind of information so I, I know the value of it I really know the value of it all right let's get this. Out of the way, you yeah. probably had to deal with this at some point. When Medea first started, first came out, uh, Spike Lee called yeah. it coonery buffoonery. Yeah. And, and over the years, there have been a number of people who say that you're playing with negative stereotypes yeah. of black men and black women. How do you Masculating black men. I've heard, I've heard it all, yeah. How do you respond to that? I, there's a certain part of, of our society, especially black people in, in, the, in the culture, that there, they look down on certain things within the culture. Uh, for me, I, I love uh, the movies that I've done because they are the people that I grew up with that I represent. And they, like my mother would take me in the projects with her on the weekends to she'd play cards with these women. Most of them didn't have a 12th grade education, but their stories and how much they loved each other and how when they get sad about something, another one would come in and make a joke. I'm five years old on the floor with my matchbox cards. I was in a master class for my life. So when someone says this is a this you're, you're hearkening back to a point of our life that we don't want to talk about it we don't want the world to see you're dismissing the stories of millions and millions of black people and that's why I think it's been so successful because it resonates with a lot of us who know these women and these experiences and Uncle Joe and so on and so forth but it also goes back to um, the, the Harlem Renaissance and Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston Langston Hughes said that Zora Neale Hurston was a new version of the darkie. She was in Langston was northern, very sophisticated, Zora Neale from the south. Her character spoke in a southern dialect. So this is this is a conversation that's been going on long before Spike Lee and Tyler Perry. It is what it is. But what is important to me is that I'm honoring the people that came up and taught and 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 made me who I am. Their stories deserve to be told, too. But there's something more than that. And it's that in the Medea movies. Yeah. 
suddenly Cicely Tyson yeah. pops up yeah. and she gives a speech like this. Take a mm. look. Mm. I mean, who are you? Do you know who you are? What happened to the pride and the dignity and the love and respect that we had for one another? Where did it go? And how? How do we get it back? Yeah, Cecily. So you talk about intentionality. Yeah. Is that the vegetable, vegetables along with the sweets? Yeah, because what I found very early on on stage is that Medea and all the jokes and the laughter was the anesthetic. Once I got the audience laughing, we could go and have these kind of conversations. And what's so important about these conversations about, you know, all kinds of things, drug abuse and what happened to us, what, where are we now? All of that was, was plaguing us as a society and no one was talking about it at this time. So to have Cicely say yes to it and Dr. Maya Angelou sit there behind her, both of who passed on now, it's just, that was, that was really powerful to watch that. Wow, what a moment, what a moment. All right, I, one last Medea clip, okay. and it's from the, the, the new movie that came out this year on Netflix, A Medea Homecoming, <laughs> where Medea explains- Chris, you sat down and watched these movies? I, I, I'm, I said to you, I'm now an expert, you having sh- never seen a Tyler Perry movie, <laughs> I do my research. Surely you had something else you could have been no, doing. No, they're very good, and, but, but this you. is one of my favorite scenes, and Thank I'm, I'm going to ask you about it. Medea explains why it is that Rosa Parks did not get off the bus in the 1950s because Rosa Parks, the sainted Rosa Parks, stole yes. Medea's man. Take That's a look. Right. That's right. Look at exactly what you've what done happened. here. Exactly what happened. <laughs> I'm gonna get you, Rosa. You see me, Rosa? Get Rosa off the damn bus, Rosa. That's Rosa Parks, and that's Archie back there. That's my man, Archie. She stole him from me. And I started to sip right moon because of this. I was like, Rosa, get off the bus. Just, I just won't talk to you. So she stayed on the bus. Man got mad. White people got mad. Next thing I know, Martin Luther King was there. Uh, Jesse Jackson, Millie Jackson, uh, J- J- Little Janet was there. Uh, Latoya Reba, all them Jacks were down there just marching and protesting down there. So, so, <laughs> I mean... You say, you, you say, well, you know, I really want to put her to rest and all yeah. of this. You do this movie on Netflix. You're not only messing with Rosa Parks. You're messing with Martin Luther King. You're messing with Jesse Jackson. You're messing with the Jackson family. Do you just like to stir up trouble? No. Listen, may I say, I know for a fact yes. that, Rosa Parks loved that Rosa Parks loved that joke. I did that joke in Diary of a Mad Black Woman. She actually saw it. Oh, really? And I got a message that she actually loved the joke. So, yes. Yes, it's it's funny those icons like the like uh, uh, John Lewis and and uh, Andy Young and all those people, my Angelos, they love Medea. So to to have that and have that be a joke that worked, I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> all right, this uh, conversation is going to turn a little bit now because okay. there is no story that is more dramatic than your own life story and how you grew up in New Orleans, poor and the victim of a father who you say literally would, would whip the, the, the flesh off your bones and that at one point you attempted to commit suicide. I want to put a picture up mm. on, on, the, on the wall here. Mm. Wow. When mm. you look at that little boy, that's you, five, what do you think? What do you, what do you say from this vantage point to that about your five-year-old self? 
it's, it's, that's hard for me to look at. My, it, I look so much, Jesus, I look so much like my son. Um, the great thing about having a child now, a seven-year-old, is I get to say all those things that I didn't get to say to, to my younger self. So I feel like it's helping to heal a lot of wounds. But to let him know that he's going to be okay and he's, he's enduring things that he has no control over. But as a man, I will pay it forward. I will try to be as the best man that I can be because of what he endured. That's what I would tell him. Do you... And how do you feel about the fact that you didn't get that? I mean, have you come to terms with the fact that you didn't get that from your father? Or is it still an open wound? I've come to terms with it. And, and, but the beauty of it is having my son. I'm telling you, every time I say I love him, I feel, I feel it being said to the little boy in me. Every time I hug him, I feel like the little boy in me is being hugged. So every, when I'm protecting him or we're building my model airplanes and outflying them, all of those things that I never had as a kid, there's something in me that's being, getting a salve and being healed and massaged. And it's, it's just a, it's a beautiful thing. There's something about having a child, especially when they're at the age when you were uh, experienced the most abuse, that if you're on the other side of it, it really speaks healing to you. If you got a raw deal from your dad, yeah. you got a great deal from your mom, Maxine, yeah. who yeah. took you to church weekly, and you say that saved you. Explain. Just the, the understanding of, uh, she and I were enduring the same kind of hell because he was very abusive to her as well, but on Sunday she would take me to church, and everything in church, the, the music and the gospel and the preaching and all of it, would she would be crying and happy and joyous. And for me, I wanted to be... Uh, in, in that, I wanted to know that God that made her so happy. So had it not been for her, I don't know where I'd be. My father often, he, he sent a message to me a few years ago through my brother saying, if I had beat your ass one more time, you would be Barack Obama. Meaning that he thinks that his abuse brought me to success. But he totally negates the love of my mother. And the love of my mother is what brought me here. It wasn't the abuse. It wasn't the rage and the anger. It was her love that brought me to this place. Do you have any relationship now with your dad? I haven't spoken to him in probably about 12 or 13 years now, but I take care of him. He gets a check every month. He lives in a house that I bought. My mother asked me to take care of him. And I give him what he gave me as a child. We were never out on the streets. The lights were never off. He worked very, very hard. He had an incredible work ethic, and I think I got that from him. And everything I, um, I am giving him now is what he gave me. So financial security or yeah. something, form of that, but love, no, no love, love, kindness, no relationship. relationship, no. And, and I'm not doing that to be mean. It's just I don't have that with him. So we talked earlier on about your studios in Atlanta, yeah. uh, 300 acres. Let me get this right. 12 sound stages, 15 sets, including a pretty good uh, version of the White House you also own all of your movies and, and TV shows. And I wonder, how do you explain it? How do you ex explain that, that you were able to put all this together? Hey, you know, a lot of that comes from just growing up. I, my father was a subcontractor, and I'd watch him build houses and come home because, so happy because he had made $800. But then I'd watch the man who owned the house sell it for $80,000. And I always wanted to be the guy who owned the house. So I think that because of the work ethic, because of how much I was touring, the audience behind me, the support they gave me, building that whole base and foundation, and just that nucleus of ownership led me to this place. This is far more than I ever could have imagined my life being. And I'm grateful for it, but it was those common denominators 
that led to this. I wouldn't sell anything. I had to own it all. The, you know, I, in, in doing my research, I not only watched a bunch of Medea movies, I also, you know, was, was reading about you. There are estimates that you're worth a billion dollars. Um, you can tell me whether that's true or not, but whatever it is, it's a fantastic amount of money. And how do you, what's your view of, of having all that money? For me, you know, when my mother died in 2009, I was, if I didn't have contracts, I don't know where I'd be because I realized that everything I was doing, the hard work that I was doing was about making sure she never had to suffer a struggle. So having, having great success has brought me to a place of, of uh, having, asking the question, okay, now what? Why do you, you've got enough, you've got, you could live, what are you doing? Why are you working so hard? But now I'm watching all these young kids who never had an opportunity in this business come to work through the gates. Thousands of people come to work. A lot of black and brown people who just could, never could have imagined being in the business. Even having you know former prisoners who've been in jail for seven, 27 years working as grip and electric and learning the trade. All of that inspires me now. So that's where I am with it now. We, you talk about your son, Amon, who's now seven years old. Yeah. Uh, how seriously do you take your role or your, your position as a, as a role model, not just to your son, yeah. but to all kids of color to show them what success is possible in their lives? Well, just, just the idea of me being a black man in America. I think uh, any kid that's black or brown who wonders if it can be done, it's seeing me, I hope that that inspires them so that they know because I didn't have a whole lot of, of those people growing up. So exposure changed my life, understanding that there were people out there doing all kinds of incredible things. So my hope is that everything that I'm doing will inspire in some other way. So I take it very seriously from that point of view, from the studio to the movies to everything I'm doing to let anybody know who's a dreamer no matter where you come from, if you're willing to work hard, not be a victim, know, know sometimes the playing field is not leveled and you just have to do your best, you can make it. So that's what my, my hope is for anybody who looks at my life. Well, you, you say you don't have to work, but you're clearly going to work. Yeah. And I read that you said, I want to play in different areas yeah. than I have before. Like what? I have a sci-fi movie about zombies. I, I've been wanting to do it for a long time. So I've got a, I'm really excited about that. I, I'm working on a World War II movie next. So I just want to talk, tell different stories. And what about Medea? What does she want? Listen, if, if the audience wants to see her, she'll be around. Can you I, give us a little Medea? Why? I'm not doing that with you, Christopher Waller. <laughs> but I just don't understand. <laughs> Christopher Waller? I'm not doing that with you, but listen, listen, I, 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 as long as I, I can't turn my back on the very thing that brought me over. I'll never do that. My mother told me, keep Medea around before she died. So as long as people want to see it, she'll be around. Tyler? Chris, Christopher Waller? Yeah. <laughs> this was a pleasure. Thank you. And it really me. was. And, and I, 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 you know, I was late to the Tyler Perry train. I will watch every movie you make from now on. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's still not your target audience, but what? No, but hey, new targets. New, new targets, targets, exactly. New targets. Bigger targets. Yeah, that's right. Tyler Perry is expanding his footprint around Atlanta, recently adding more than 37 acres to his already sprawling studio. As he just mentioned, he hopes to provide more jobs for locals, including those who've lived in shelters or spent time in prison. Thanks for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want right here on HBO Max to find out. Who's talking next?
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.